HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to someone who inspires me in the world of hospitality, and today I have someone who's joining me who runs a food truck, and not just any food truck. She has the only female-run Ethiopian Eritrean food truck in New York City. Now that might sound sort of like a slice of a slice of a slice, but it is delicious. So let's just say today my guest is someone who runs a fabulous food truck on the streets of New York City. Welcome, Eden Gerbreg Xavier. Thank you. (laughs) I got through the really hard part, which is pronouncing your name. You did. You did a good job. Um, So I first met you because of um, the Vendies, and you won a Rookie Vendie Award, right? Finalist, yes. Finalist. Um, congratulations on that. So, of course, I had to go and taste the food, right? I, I'm sure that you, I was sure that you would be an extraordinary human, but I actually wanted to be sure that you're an extraordinary cook. And I went, and the line was so long, and people were just you know waiting patiently for their um, for their chicken tibs and 
these dishes that I just wasn't really familiar with. So I was so excited to meet you and meet your food. And today I just, I want to talk a little bit about um, your journey to this place where you are today. You um, tell me a little bit about growing up in Ethiopia. You were there till you were 15? Yes. So um, my dad and my mom, um, they're actually from a country right above Ethiopia called Eritrea. And uh, for so many years, they were together. So the schools were based in Ethiopia. Some of the fundamental things that you needed to get were based in, especially in the main um, city. So as a result, my both my dad and my mom separately migrated to the capital city. And they met each other, fell in love, and got married. And uh, my sister and I were born there. So um, home is kind of what I have known um, is in Addis in Ethiopia. So we grew up there. We went to school there. Our friends are from there. Grandparents, are not far. Are they still there? The they're they're not. They're in uh, in Eritrea. But yes, so close by. Close by. Yeah. Right. And um, did you have? What was your childhood like? It's not something that I feel like I can even imagine what it would be like growing up in Ethiopia. It was great. Um, we have 13 months of sunshine. It's called 13 months of sunshine. <laughs> so the weather is great. Um, very close to California weather. So sunny pretty much majority of the year. Um, we had lots and lots of holidays. Um, uh, the Christians and the Muslims, um, whatever different religions that they had. So that we had a lot of celebration. Um, very community-based, so we just couldn't wait to finish school so we can come home and play with our neighbors. <laughs> um, schools were not really, um, you go to school where the closest to you. Um, usually it's, you know, you either go to private school or if it's public school, you get to kind of choose where you want to go. So it's not necessarily that you go to school where your neighbor goes to school. So some of our favorite friends were going to a different school, so we were looking forward to coming back. And uh, very education um, heavy. So we spent after school and then after after school studies, but pretty much a fun childhood. Very fun. Um, very much about food. Everyone eats together. I was going to ask. So tell me about the food, because uh, obviously you carried it in your heart, which is why you brought it onto a truck. Yes. But uh, what were the foods of your childhood that you loved the best? So just to kind of help I remember when I was in college um, eating by myself I just thought it was so depressing and I couldn't figure out why I would just feel some sort of like loneliness um, and then just slow, slowly realized that wait a minute like we never really eat alone back home um, it's family tradition that if you're eating you have to eat with somebody so if you're hungry, I either have to wait for my sister or for a relative, or if it's for dinner, the entire family sits together and we eat together. And if it is for lunch, we're at school, we eat with our friends. So eat, uh, food is community, food is friends, food is family, food is pretty much life for us. And so were you cooking when you were a kid? Did your mom, was your mom or a great cook? So, no, I didn't cook um, at all. And I actually remember the, the few times that I cooked. Um, so 
both in Ethiopia and Eritrea, labor was very, very cheap. So you also have a lot of people that come, stay with you, um, and cook and clean the house. So most of the time, um, it's somebody that usually comes and cooks. So we washed. So both my sister and I never really um, played around in the kitchen. I remember one time we wanted to cook. We wanted to surprise dad and mom. We wanted to make this very, very um, complicated casserole. And it was a disaster. Oh, no. um, yeah, we didn't even end up serving it to them, but they appreciated the fact that. Well, what was the casserole and what went wrong? It was, I honestly don't remember. Um, it was, we looked at it from a cookbook, and it's where you, um, it's boiling water, and then you put the casserole, it's not direct heat, so you drop it in. So it was some something similar to quiche. And uh, when we try to drop it into the boiling water, the with, water bath, yeah. yes, and um, it curdled. I imagine. Yep, the entire <laughs> thing just dropped. Water came in, um, and that yeah, we didn't serve that. So that was I remember having that experience, and uh, and then we were like, you know, we'll just stay away. But we really were forced to cook um, when we left Ethiopia. Um, and why did you leave? So. Both Ethiopia and Eritrea, very similar countries, different countries, but very similar in culture, even in the way people look and the um, the food that we eat. Um, and in 98, out of just really out of the blue, um, one time we were watching the news and you say, oh, um, the Eritrean government or the Ethiopian government went and bombed um, this part of the country. Nobody really paid attention to it. It wasn't like... They're anticipating something. Um, so we're like, something minor. Um, the next day, we're like, we hear the story. So pretty much within a week, it was a full-blown-out war. Um, so at this point, people are like, where did this come from? And um, not to get really, really detailed, but pretty much um, both governments were being very stubborn and taking it at the cost of the people. So the um, Ethiopian government started to deport everyone that was Eritrean, um, and then vice versa. The Eritrean government started to deport everyone that was Ethiopian. I see. And so you were Eritreans living in Ethiopia, and therefore you had no choice but to leave. Yes, yes. And you left. What did that feel like? Do you remember, because maybe it's too long ago, but maybe it's seared in your memory. What does that feel like to leave your home? I remember... I remember us being in a daze because just brain couldn't move fast enough to catch up with reality. My mother um, has always been an entrepreneur, and she traveled back and forth um, from the States to Ethiopia. Um, so at that time, she had schools. So she has several schools, and she was here to um, train for um, some sort of a program and also visit her friend that was... Um, that was a little bit sick and she was at the airport and they give her pretty much an exit visa and they said you're not allowed to come back here anymore so she lands in america she calls and she said hey um i was supposed to have a two weeks visa and i'm told that i can't come back so what do i do and at that time, the news was so new, even the American government didn't know about it. So she thought that she was making it up. Oh, my goodness. So my mom is stuck in the States. She packed a two weeks of traveling time. 
and uh, she can't leave. She has really, really bad asthma where she got it from Eritrea. So she mm -hmm. can't really live in Eritrea because her asthma is, um, is terrible. So she can't go to Eritrea. We're in Ethiopia. She can't go back to Ethiopia. She's in America. She's like, I don't know what's going on. So in the midst of this, um, the way that the whole thing was happening was they would come, the Ethiopian government would come in the middle of the night and um, take the father of the house and um, arrest them and then drop them off at the border and or drop them to Eritrea and then the rest of the family has to follow. So, so that left two teenagers to figure out with no mother how to get from home to your father? Yes. So my father, they came looking for my father. My parents were very active in the church and my dad was actually um, at church when they came looking for him. And he came, he packed his things, he tried to get us out um, with him, and he couldn't. So at that point, he had to make, I would say, probably the toughest decision in his entire life is to leave, um, flee to the nearest country, which was Kenya, and leave us there, or stay with us, get arrested, and probably not be reunited with my mother probably for a very, very long time. So he made the decision to go ahead and go to Kenya, and he left us with um, very close relatives. So at this point, here we are, no mom, no dad. My sister and I are just like, what is going on right now? And um, not really knowing, like, when are we going to leave the country? What's going to happen? And nobody has an answer. So... Um, I remember one time we were playing in the neighborhood and um, the person that my dad just kind of, you know, gave as a guardian, um, he, he said to us, okay, um, come, come quickly. And we were playing. He's like, grab whatever you need to grab right now. We're like, okay, maybe we're just going to do a sleepover. Um, we grab our things. And he said, do not say anything. Say goodbye to who is in the house. And okay, we say goodbye. And I remember getting in the car, and that's when it hit me that we we're actually leaving Ethiopia. So I remember driving in the car and looking at our neighbors, and they were like waving by, but they're thinking that, you know, we're probably going to do a sleepover, we'll see you tomorrow. And, and then that was it. So we left, um, we spent the night at his and his family's house, and the next day we caught a plane to Kenya. And we flew to Kenya and we joined my dad in Kenya. Was that terrifying? That was very terrifying. I was, I was so terrified that um, I couldn't speak for about four days or five days. Um, even at the airport, we were interrogated, um, asking, were your parents involved in politics? Where are your parents from? And not really to talk about politics, but... Um, it was done in both countries. This was just our experience. Um, so when we landed in Kenya, um, I was so shaken up by the whole experience. When I saw my dad, I just, I, I just thought it was a dream. So for days, I couldn't talk. He would talk to me, I would hear him, things would register, but I couldn't open my mouth. Like, I was that much terrified. Do you, um, I mean... You've come such a long way, but it must, what, reading about the U.S. at this point and separating the, the families must be really painful to you. 
Absolutely. Watching the news. Absolutely. Um, when I think of home, even now, um, a lot of my memories were, were made in Ethiopia. So I couldn't really like wrap around to the concept of um, we're not together, like we're not the same. Um, we have love for each other. So it was hard for me. It was really hard for me. And it was also hard to see a lot of the families really just being ripped apart. And probably, I think they just made peace after 20 years. And uh, there were some photos that were taken because there were maybe the husband was Eritrean or the mm -hmm. wife was Eritrean or Ethiopia, vice versa. And they were separated this whole time. So reuniting for the first time in so many years, like in two decades, um, and seeing those pictures, it was just, you know, that could have been our family, very much so. And, and how, I mean, I guess it's, it's partly luck, it's partly other things that you did end up together. And you were in, in Kenya for about a year and then you came to the States? Yes. And were you, um, how did you end up in the Carolinas? So uh, the friend that my mother was visiting, um, they were in the Carolinas. So she, um, I mean, she got stuck there. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she didn't have any other choice. Two weeks turned into 20 years. So <laughs> um, they, they, they pretty much um, applied for um, asylum for her. And um, they, they were very, very, very gracious enough to, to say, hey, you know, stay here. We'll process everything for you. And, um, and I think it took a, a little over a year and a half to, to finally just get all the paperwork and the whole family to get reunited. A year and a half to, until your mother and father were at, and you were still in the, in, in the same place. Yes. That is a long separation. To, at least there are phones. Yes. I guess. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. And you, so you went to school in Kenya and then you came here and um, finished out high school. Yes. So I think... Um, it was definitely hard for my mom. One, she was alone. Um, and two, uh, you know, the, the Western culture is completely different from um, our culture. So learning that um, when you do visit, you know, it's two weeks, maybe a week. So you can manage, but you're here permanently. And now you have to adapt this new place as your home. What was the biggest adaptation for you in coming to, um, in coming to the States? Wow, everything. Um, language, for sure. What did you? What were you speaking um, in Ethiopia? Um, I was speaking Amharic. Okay. Amharic, and then at home, um, or when my parents get really angry, um, they speak Tigringa, which is spoken in Eritrea. So these were the the two main languages that was spoken. Um, but your English is perfect. So were you learning English in school? I I was think? actually terrible when it come when it came to language. So in middle school, we'll just take English class, like how here you can take Spanish class or French. So that was my my experience, and I always failed. So <laughs> I'm sorry, that's terrible. <laughs> and then we went to Kenya. So Kenya helped a little bit because they um, they spoke English, and but their English was proper English. So that helped a little bit. And, and then I came um, uh, high school in the States um, and the Carolinas where um, I think my sister and I might have been the first immigrants. Might. I'm not sure. But probably three or four others. Um, so we were one of the first. And uh, 
pretty much our concept was if we didn't speak English quick enough, then we're not going to be able to communicate with anybody. So, and in high school, of course, you want to be, you know, you're still developing who you are as a person. Um, so you want to be liked and you want to fit in. So we had no choice but to learn English as quickly as possible. <laughs> you did that well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then... Um, you went to USC for, for college, and I love you studied accounting. Yes. Does that seem practical? Yes. <laughs> so um, I think this is just, it might be an immigrant um, mentality, which is they're very practical. And so there are certain careers that are a guarantee. Um, and so, which most people here, either a doctor or an engineer or, you know, accounting, but anything in related to creative or art wasn't really in the picture. And part of it is because for so many years, it has been, you know, Africa has been just messed up with war. And so you, they haven't really gotten a chance to develop the creative side. So everything has have just been practical. Um, and so education, my dad was an engineer. And as a result, you know, I had to pick a career that was a guarantee. Um, I said, I'm going to be a doctor. I think I went probably freshman, the first semester. I took biology. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> this is not for me. And engineer, I was like, yeah, that's not for me. So I was like, I'm good with numbers. Um, probably somewhere like math. No, I don't want to study math. So I was like, okay, something in regards to business. So I'll do accounting. Um, and, and then I studied accounting and I got my degree in accounting. And do you feel like there was a creative part of you that was trying to break out, but you just didn't feel like you could do that? Absolutely. Um, I remember, so my dad was um, adopted by uh, American missionary when he was a kid. So he was... Um, he was raised by, by her, and she had a few other um, kids as well. So when she used to come visit us, she used to bake. So I loved the concept of baking, and she used to make chocolate cake from scratch. So I actually have, like, so many pictures of us, like, when we were so little, and she used to bake, and we used to just kind of circle around her, and we used to watch her, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I want to be able to make chocolate cake one day the way that she used to make it. And, uh, and then the first time that we just kind of, me and my sister learned how to cook was in Kenya. Um, obviously now we're um, refugees, immigrants um, in a different country and we, we have to survive, we have to cook, we have to eat. So we're making food, you know, adding one and one together and hoping that it comes out the way that we want it. <laughs> Better Sometimes than that casserole. It does. Yes. <laughs> so that was us practicing. And, uh, and then in high school, I, I told my parents, I've just had this urge to be um, a pastry chef. And, but everyone just kind of laughed it off. Oh, it's not serious. And uh, in high school, we had a cooking class. And you had a choice which class kind of you wanted it to choose. It wasn't elective. I, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't mandatory. So I wanted it to really learn how to bake. So I used to go to class and then come home and then I used to practice. So I really perfected how to make like carrot cake and tiramisu and some of the things. And of course, like my grandma's chocolate cake. 
and played with it so much. So I really, really, really wanted to be a pastry chef. Like I wanted to, to go into that route. But being an immigrant in that time, I and I didn't see anybody. For me, there was really not, not that many role models that looked like me, that had walked the same path as me, that have taken the creative route. So I didn't know how to vision. And obviously, like, I wasn't confident enough or strong enough to say, like, I'm going to do this on my own. So it was just something that I kept inside. And then I just took the route of, you know, um, more the practical route. And then you um, you came back. You came to New York City, and um, you did a, a bunch of odd jobs. But you ended up in the restaurant industry. I wonder if um, some of that love of baking then grew in your mind to sort of entertain the notion that you could run a restaurant or have a business. Like, where was the seed of the truck born? So, um, when I started to work in the restaurant. My sister actually started um, ahead of me. So when she was in college, she used to work at an Italian um, restaurant. And so she used, to, she used to watch it. And of course, because of the Italian influences in our culture, pasta is very close to our heart. So whenever she would see um, the chef makes you know, a dish, she would come home and she would practice it. And then I would get so excited. I'm like, wow, like how cool would it be to work in a restaurant and you get to eat, you know, what you want to eat and you get to do all these things. And um, I mean, like most people, when you're going to college, you know, you, you get a job in the restaurant or um, any other place. So I ended up getting a job in the restaurant, but I actually just loved it. I loved it. And people used to make fun of me. Um, they were like, you have no experience. You have no New York experience. Um, I remember the first time I tried to get a job, I... I walked from, I think, 115 from West Side all the way down to the village, knocking door to door, do you have a job for me? Do you have a job for me? Do you have a job for me? And not a single person called wow. me. And they're like, do you have a resume? And that was the first time I said, a resume? I didn't know that, oh, no. you know, that there was such a thing as a resume. But someone took a chance on me, um, but I loved it. So they put me as a hostess. I worked so hard. They were like, you know what? Why don't you just, um, you know, uh, wait tables on a slow night? I'm like, sure, I'll do that. You know, Why don't you bartend? I was like, sure, I'll do that. And by the end, I ended up like learning how to do everything. And then I would go in the kitchen and I would just like, watch the the sous chef or the chef cook and I'm like oh how did you do that like how did you do that and then I would try to come home and on my day off if I have to cook like I'll try to to recreate that so that's kind of where my heart and my passion just for food really really developed um but I still didn't connect that I would go into that route I have had this burning desire to do something on my own, like to be an entrepreneur, to be able to give back. I just felt so grateful for all the things that was provided for me. And so I wanted to be in a position now, not always receiving, but, all, you know, being able to give. So I couldn't figure it out. And I went into the corporate route. And that was, I think that was the moment where I was like, I absolutely cannot do this. <laughs> like, I have to do something on my own. And um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to find out about why the corporate route did not work for Eden and how she became the extraordinary entrepreneur that she is. And also hear something about the really delicious Ethiopian food, which um, I had 
first become acquainted with in Washington, D.C., because there's some really great Ethiopian restaurants in D.C. Yes. But um, I learned a lot more just eating at your truck. So stay with us. We'll be right after this quick break. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. One Hundred Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to twelve-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I'm riveted by my own conversation. I guess that's a terrible thing to say, but I'm riveted by my guest, not by my own conversation. Um, Eden Gerbre-Xavier, who is the owner of Makina, which is an Ethiopian-Eritrean food truck in New York City. And we were just learning about um, that light bulb moment when you were working for a corporation, like, this is not for me. How did you know? Um, Or what were you doing when you figured that out? So I was working. I finally got a nine-to-five job um, in my field and my degree. So my father was very happy. Um, and what was the job? Uh, uh, marketing manager. Okay. Marketing manager. Um, but there was also um, another opening for the same company as my dad. So he really wanted me to move to the Carolinas. And, when, um, and they had promised me, you know, we know the type of person that you are. If you're just like your father, you're going to work so hard. And, you know, it was a guaranteed future pretty much. Um, but just, I was not ready to, to leave New York. Um, and, and I said, I don't know where else would I go other than New York. So I decided, no, I'm going to take the job here in New York. So my father was like, oh, my goodness. Gonna, <laughs> but at least it's fine. You have a nine-to-five job. It's okay. So I worked. At first, it was exciting. Um, and then slowly, I started to say, but I, I want to do some more. And I would come with an idea and get, get so excited and it wouldn't pass, and then I'm like, okay. So it was just, you know, a normal job, um, but I felt so restless, extremely restless. So I tried to um, partner with a couple of my friends, and maybe we'll launch a small marketing boutique. And so we tried so many different ways. I think it was just my heart telling me, you need to do something on your own. And I tried a few things, and they still didn't work. So. Um, finally, something amazing happened, which was I got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. So I remember saying when, when uh, my manager came to tell me, 
I was so happy. I honestly, he thought that I was going to do something crazy. Like he thought I just lost it. <laughs> but I was so happy. I didn't have it in me to quit. So when I got laid off, I was like, this is amazing. I was like, thank you, God. I appreciate it. So, okay, I got laid off. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I still didn't have that it idea yet. So I'm like, oh, so restless. So fine. I'll go look for another job. So I kept going for interviews after interviews. And, um, and I remember this was the time that it clicked. Um, after interviewing for a few places, and some had given me job offers, I wasn't too crazy about the salary. But I remember I said, I know I'm going to get this job. It was for our hospitality. It was in food. And I was going to be very hands-on. Um, it was in a lab. And... Um, but at the same time, like I was going to be in charge of marketing. So I said, this is exciting. This is my field. I have done it. I knew it. So I go for interview. First round goes really well. And I remember the owner actually came um, with another person and they're interviewing me. But the interview just went completely left. Um, they were like, you're an entrepreneur. What if, if you take our ideas and you run with it? Um, you should never put this on your resume that you want to do something on your own. And then just the interview ended. And, and I was like, what? I don't get this. They're telling me that I need to be creative. When I'm creative, they don't want you to be creative. And then when they're asking you, we want to see if you're an entrepreneur, if you'll take charge. And then when you show them, no, we don't want it to be like that. This is crazy. Like, I just need to do something on my own because you're never going to be perfect for, for, for the people. So I said, I'm going to do something on my own. I'm going to open up a restaurant. And then I said, I can't afford a restaurant. What am I going to do? And at that time, um, I was dating a guy, and we've been together for um, six, seven years. And uh, he, we were, he was like, why don't you, you love coffee, um, you love pastry, so why don't you go on the route of um, opening, like, Ethiopian coffee shop slash pastry, and you can bake Actually, your own like pastry. Actually, sounds like a really good idea. It is, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, that sounds so amazing. So I started to search for um, rent. And then I quickly realized, ah, yeah, um, I don't know where I'm going to get the money from. And one day, we're just talking. He said, um, what about a food truck? He's like, what about a coffee truck? I said, brilliant idea. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, then I realized, well, if it's just coffee, it may not be enough income. Because I'm still thinking. You're still an accountant. Yes. <laughs> like, I have, to, I have to also be able to make money. Then... The other wrestle that I had was, okay, then it's going to be food, but what kind of food? And brainstorming process. And my honestly, my first initial was Italian because it's done before. Um, if I did anything in regards to like Habesha food, which is like Ethiopian and Eritrean food, I don't know if people know about it. And it's, it was such a big risk for me. And there was, I couldn't do research. So obviously my business side was like, I need to research everything, read about it, make sure that things line up for, you know, for me to be able to take the, this risk. And I couldn't read anything about it when it comes to my particular food and food truck, and especially in New York, it has never been done. But then curiosity started to kick in and say, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a very good thing because you don't have a competition when it comes to, to that. And 
how cool would it be that you have struggled in New York for so long and nothing is new anymore, um, but you actually get to have a first title? Um, what if, if you're like the first? And that just really excited me. And um, I loved my food. My friends always complain whenever we say, hey, where do you guys want to eat? They were like, they, they won't even count me in because they know I'm going to say, I want to eat Ethiopian food. I want to eat Eritrean food. <laughs> so I love my food so much. But I also wanted people to love my food just the same way that I loved it. And um, it was so rich in culture, so rich in, in spices and so rich in flavor. So I wanted to bring African cuisine. I wanted to bring Ethiopian. I wanted to bring Eritrean cuisine to mainstream. So that's how Makina Cafe pretty much got created. Okay, but we know from our short time together that you did not, I mean, you did grow up baking and you practiced a bunch of food, but you didn't grow up in the kitchen, you know, your grandmother's um, apron strings. So how did you recreate the flavors of your home cooking? So I have a very good um, taste buds and... When I was a kid, I was such a picky eater. My, I used to drive my mom and my dad off the wall. So the food has to be good. So I grew up knowing what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. And through practice, I knew what was good and what wasn't good. So I got help. I definitely got help and I knew which flavors were a hit and which flavors weren't a hit. And a hit meaning you think that other people would enjoy them in addition to yourself or like it actually matched the flavor profile in your own mind? Both. I When I went into it, I, I, I thought for two things. One was, and which is probably like my business side kicking in, if people never really heard of your food, never heard of Ethiopia, never heard of Eritrea, you know, are not really too familiar with African food, um, don't be intimidating. Why don't you pick flavors that most people use and that is also used in your own culture? And why don't you highlight that? Why don't that be the introduction? And then slowly introduce um, other dishes. So I said, I can definitely do that. So I practiced on mastering ingredients that were also used here in the States and that most people are familiar with, but also were a staple in, in Ethiopia and in Eritrea. So we cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked. Until and who's the we? Me and my sister, honestly. Oh, yeah, me yeah. and my sister. Does your sister live in New York? She lives in New York. Yes, That's great. she lived in New York. And we cooked um, and we said, no, this is not the right recipe. No, this is not the right recipe. And we played with it. And it was very important to me that it was both Ethiopians and Eritreans can come and eat and they say it's good. And whoever was not Ethiopian or Eritrean can come and eat and still feel like, wow, like this is amazing. So I wanted to, to combine those two together. And it was, it was hard. Um, but we finally, we finally got it. And I said, yes, like this is the recipe I want to I wanna perfect. And I still have that eye. And I still want to continue to um, create dishes that... Because you have a tight menu. Yes. Right, which I think is very smart. And the, the menu itself has... Um, dishes that I don't know or sauces that I don't know. And I think it's very bold to do that, to, yes. to not dumb it down and be like, this is just a green sauce or whatever. Yes. But 
there's an always yes sauce and there's tibs and I feel like you're educating people as you're feeding them. Yes, absolutely. Um, the descriptions, even just in the way the menu was laid out, um, I wanted to just, when I think about, let's say, for example, like fast casual um, um, companies like Chipotle or um, other companies that have mastered this, pick your base, pick your protein. I wanted to create that. Um, I knew that New Yorkers were fast. Um, I knew that they didn't have time to um, be picky. And I also didn't want them to get intimidated or just the outside, um, just the cover to distract them. I wanted them to come and try the food and be like, oh, this is, this is fun. I can try this. Oh, what is this? I've never tried it. And then let the food speak to them. And then I know that once they try it, they're going to come back. And the way I describe the menu is I used words, obviously, that are um, from Ethiopia and from Eritrea. But I also wrote a full description of what it is. So they're not saying, I have no idea what I'm eating. Um, the description is there. So uh, I loved the food. Um, and I loved the injera. Yes. So uh, where is the food made now? Because you... you develop the recipe but I imagine you're not cooking the food yourself so we have a kitchen we have a we have a commercial kitchen um, that we use so we cook um, a lot of our vegetables vegetables there and uh, the most unique thing about our truck is we have vegetable dishes as well as we have meat dishes so the meat is actually cooked on the spot so whenever someone orders a meat dish, um, we cook it right then and there. So they know that it's fresh. Um, if you go and pick you know, food from another truck, it might take two minutes or maybe a minute. Um, for us, it takes five minutes. We're still extremely sensitive about that time frame because we know that people have to go back um, to work. Um, but it's, it's, it's worth it because they smell their food being cooked. It's not sitting there forever. Um, it's super fresh. They see us using fresh ingredients. Um, and I'm very, very uh, meticulous when it comes to using everything that's fresh. Um, I was also amazed at your speed and your ability to multitask. Because you're talking to me, you're bagging something, you're talking to the person behind you telling them what to cook, and you're talking to some person who's sort of out on the left side waiting, and you're like, you know, your food is coming, I put your order in, is that ready yet? Are you the greatest multitasker ever? That's what I saw. <laughs> is that a part of your personality? Do you always do sort of five things at once? Um, I have to, but I think... Working in the restaurant, you can't be, you can't just do one thing. Um, you're doing one thing and somebody else is screaming at you, you got to do this one. And then somebody else is like, no, but you got to do this thing. So your mind has to be open to doing so many things at the same time. So I quickly developed that, that mindset. And I'm also instilling that to anyone that comes on the truck to work that they can't just be stuck in doing one thing. They have to be able to do multiple things. So I want to inspire them to be able to do that. Have there been great New York moments, like either you have a repeat customer who, you know, you have this great relationship with and they bring you, you know, books or coffee? Or, I mean, is there something that has developed being part of the street culture in New York? Yes. I mean, my goodness, I don't think... I would have opened anywhere else if it was in New York. Um, one, some of the most amazing compliments that I hear is I would just 
have somebody that probably were running late or something and they see us with no line and they were like, let me just order something and they just order and they come back. They were like, what did I just eat? I have no idea what I ate and this is so good. That's a compliment for me. Um, they didn't plan it. They didn't think about it. Um, and then I also have people that have either friends or um, relatives. I'll never forget. I think it was two months into opening the truck and I was working and this guy comes up to me and he hands me, he orders his food and he hands me um, money from Eritrea. <gasps> and I got so emotional because I haven't seen it in 20 years. And, and I said, where'd you get it? It caught me like I stopped what I was doing. And, and he said, I was just there. And so, hey, can I pay with it? And that was so special to me because they came specifically knowing that there was a truck and they knew that it would mean so special to me. Um, and so I kept it, of course, and, 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 um, and I saved it. So you get moments like that where people completely surprise you and say like, hey, I appreciate your culture as well. And let me share that with you. Now, your dad had had some question marks along the way, right? Like he really, you know, he wanted you to go into a safe profession. He wanted you to take the practical route. Now, running a truck, um, not everybody would consider that practical. Yes. What does your dad think? Oh, he had a problem. <laughs> he definitely had a problem. I remember when I told him, um, Dad, um, I am opening up a food truck. He was like, oh, what? He, did, he didn't understand it at first. So mom was like, be supportive, be supportive, come on. So he's still like biting his tongue. He's like, okay. And then when I told him that I'm actually opening an Ethiopian and Eritrean food truck, he lost it. He lost it. He was like, what, what are you doing with your life? What is going on? So he didn't understand it. He couldn't wrap his head around it. Um, honestly, for the simple fact that there hasn't really been anyone to just kind of pave that road for them to see and say, hey, look, look at this person. They followed their heart. They followed their passion. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to fit this category. And look, they're they're happy. It doesn't even have to be a definition of money. But do they value happiness? They absolutely value happiness. Because some, you know, some immigrant families actually don't. Yeah. Right. Because you're meant to work hard and happiness is not the be all and end all. Yeah. <laughs> it's an American obsession. Yeah. Um, but no, that would, that's good. So it's, it's, it's so funny because my dad, when we were growing up, he had two girls and he, he used to tell us, you can do whatever you want to do in the world. Like, don't think that there is a limitation. He was very strong in building that confidence in us. So when we finally decided to do those things, he was like, well, maybe in this parameter, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I could say, maybe just, you know, if you take this route, he didn't, he didn't understand the free thought of, hey, you can actually do whatever you want to do. So he didn't believe it. Um, I opened and it was he was still struggling. I think the first time that he realized, wow, she might be up to something was... Um, when I went on Good Morning America and he still he thought it was just something at home that, you know, he can talk to his wife, my mom. And he got to work and his co-workers had lined up a chair and they were like, your daughter is going to be on Good Morning America. That's so so um, he sat there and he watched it and he got very emotional. He was like, yeah, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. 
So um, his coworkers were like, you should be very proud. That is your daughter. So it was, you know, it took that <laughs> for, for him <laughs> to realize that I'm up to something. That's so good. Okay, so, and then um, I'm teary here. That's so sweet. Um, also, I mean, I love dads who support their daughters. So you have big plans, right? You have one truck. Tell me, tell me your dreams. And not wow. your nightmares. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I wake up and the food's not prepped. But <laughs> my, my dreams are, you know, I still to this day struggle because I want to... My goals and my dreams are so big, but I still struggle on the practical side because once again, I have to kind of create my own vision in a way. And it's not a book that I can read. So I have to take inspiration from, you know, um, stories that I hear from different cultures, stories that I hear even from here, the challenges that they face and just kind of put it together and create kind of my own world and create my own vision. So my goal is... Food, like I said, brings so much to me, not just to nourish our soul, but it's a sense of community, a sense of family, like I, I was saying earlier, and to be able to bring that to mainstream. Um, I've noticed just every um, few decades, there's an introduction to new culture and new food and a new wave. So I wanted our food to be um, that new wave. Um, pretty soon so and I want to be on the forefront of that when when that wave is happening so I wanted to be able to to bring some sort of awareness some sort of um, wow like Ethiopian food is so amazing Eritrean food is so amazing have you had it and not just that but to move past have you had it but to actually get creative with it learn how to be creative learn how to mix different spices or um you know maybe from west africa or not even just africa from from europe or from asia or from america use different ingredients and combine it together and people actually enjoy it and you still can call it um ethiopian food or Eritrean food and what has been the single hardest challenge to overcome in running your business? Creating vision. Um, Again, when you don't have a path that you can say, if you just follow this path, it's going to lead you to to this road. Um, I still don't know. I am believing and hoping um, the direction that I'm going to is going to be big, but it's not a guarantee. Um, and so I get times when things go completely wrong that it gets in my head that I say, oh, this may never work. It might just be an idea in my head. Um, and then there are times when things go well, like, wow, this can go really well. So that is the hardest challenge. And I don't really have... Um, someone that I can go to and say, hey, did you accomplish this? Can I come and and follow you in regards to that? So I have to find it, not someone that's exactly like me, but I have to find it from people that have faced challenges in general and and follow them and see how they overcame that. The the last question on the show is, in fact, quite related to that, which is, um, is there someone who you admire, a a woman in the world of food, who has been an inspiration in some way, one way or another? So when I think of that, um, it may not directly be um, 
and specifically in food, but I, I say my mother. And the reason why I say that is because um, she was also the odd in her generation. Um, everyone went and got a job. So she was working as a teacher. And then finally she was like, no, I'm going to go and open up my own school. Um, people thought she was crazy. So she went and opened up her schools and she was very, very successful, uh, matter of fact. And then when we came to the States, she lost everything. And she had to go and get an, an odd job. And she went and worked that and realized, oh, I can do this. And I can actually open up a company. And so my mom is an entrepreneur. So from childhood, I have seen that. And believe it or not, whenever I face challenges, I call my mother in regards to that. Like when I have problem with employees, she's the first person that I call. And she's like, you got to handle it in this way. You got to be able to handle it this way. You have to talk in this manner. Um, if you want to motivate your employees, you have to go about it this way. When I am faced with challenges about money, she's the person. So in a lot of ways, when it came to business, it was my mother that, that challenged me. So it may not in particularly be in food, but the business aspect of it, she has been the one that has been championing me. She was the one when I told her I'm going to open up a food truck. She was like, is this what you want to do? And I said, yes. She was like, well, you have my blessing. <laughs> so she has pushed and moved things and moved my family's mindset. And, and when it came to business, she has pushed me into thinking outside of the table. Um, so she is the one that, you know, I get very inspired by. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Eden. If people want to follow the truck, because that's how they can come eat the food, um, how can they find it? We move around, but we also have a set schedule. So if you follow um, at Makina Cafe, M-A-K-I-N-A um, Cafe, C-A-F-E, either on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, we post our location every morning, or they can go to our website, Makina Cafe NYC, and they will be able to find us. And I went and visited at um, 41st off 6th, just to give people a sense of where you are. And are you usually in Midtown Manhattan? We are in Midtown three times a week. So Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, we're in Midtown. Um, on Tuesdays, we are in Dumbo. And on Thursdays, we are in downtown financial district. Well, thank you so much. Um, you guys know where to find me at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. I want to thank um, Nina Medviskaya for her help today and also um, Matt Patterson. Thank you so much. And join us next week for another episode of Inspiring Individuals who um, you know, show us the way. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.